Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan Online. And I'm joined today all the way from Buenos Aires, Argentina. You know him as Moored to Light. It's Emmy Sagasti. Emmy, welcome. Hey yo, how is it going, Dan? I just heard you were in a fancy dinner alongside all these fancy archaeologists. How was that? Uh, I've been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> The whiskey was flowing. We started with the wine and then <laughs> switched to the beer and then the whiskey came out. So we're getting the drunk Dan special? Has it arrived? Well, I, I don't know if I'd go that far. There was a lot of food too. Oh, okay, but, okay. Uh, you know, I, I've been in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem for more than three months now and we're coming to the end. Uh, I'll be back in the States at the end of December. So, Oh, damn, I thought it was longer. I thought you were sticking in Jerusalem for longer. I don't know why I thought it was like a six-month trip. Honestly, I think four months is about all I can handle. <laughs> I didn't really understand what I was getting into before I came. Like, on the one hand, it's a research institute, right? The community is wonderful. But on the other hand, like, it's not like the, the happiest place to be, to be honest. I don't think I'll come back here. <laughs> Ever. It's, so this is the goodbye from Jerusalem. We're getting like two more episodes from mid, mid from mid Asia Dan, and we're getting back to the old Western theme. I mean, I hope to spend more time in like you know Jordan or Egypt or somewhere else, but not Jerusalem. <laughs> no, I mean like the occupation here is 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 quite sad. It's a quite sad situation, and things have only gotten worse. They don't cover this a lot in the American papers, but. The elections here that took place a little over a month ago, this is the most right-wing government that Israel's ever had, and it's, you know, things are getting pretty dark, pretty dire, so... I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I don't want to get into it too much. It's kind of (laughs) the counterpoint to all the Mariah Carey Christmas that Dave and I were talking about last week. It's not the happiest place here. Yeah, I can see that. I can relate to that. I mean, you were having riots in the streets of Buenos Aires last week. I'm living in the other side of the world. We have riots, and Argentina wins a game, and all it's, and all it's fine, you know. <laughs> if there's one thing that the Romans proved, is that the circus and the Coliseum works. Give them bread and circuses, and Lionel Messi. And everything will be fine. Just give them Messi. Ah, that game, though. I mean, jeez. That was an intense game. That game sort of proves what, I, what we always talk about with my friends, is that Argentina has like a way of playing football in the way that this is the first game I see like completely because I was meeting with a friend that's suddenly leaving in a few days. It's moving outside, so we're spending like as much time together as a group. That's the only reason I saw the, the complete game. And it really shows like Argentina has this potrero mentality. Potrero is that like football on the streets with like a spare piece of rug and whatever you have. And like they play to like the limit of what they can do. Is zero point one to the left of what the shots allow, of what the referee is allowing. <laughs> so you don't think they play with honor? They don't play with integrity? No, no, Argentina doesn't have an integrity or honor in that regard. Like I said this during the game as a fan. When Messi got his yellow card at like moment at minute ninety-five, I was like, two minutes ago I said Messi hasn't gotten his yellow card yet, which means he needs to get his yellow card. <laughs> Why are, if you're not getting a yellow card, you're not playing to win. You're not maximizing the annoyance to your opponent. 
gosh. And Argentina still plays with that mentality. It's the same mentality as trying to get two game warnings before stop getting game warnings in a tournament magic. Wow. You know, for some reason, I thought because the Argentinian players are so skilled that they wouldn't have to resort to that kind of culture. It's not... The thing is, that's, what, that's the important part. They don't see it as a dishonor. They see it as, if I don't do this and we lost, I didn't give my best. My best for my team and for whatever I'm representing is go to the limit. That's the mentality. It's not a, oh yeah, I will scrap this and try to get advantage via this. No, no, it's more of a, why didn't I do it if it may have led us to winning? It's that weird jumping on a weird line that Argentinians scroll through. And I mean, there's not a single country that hates the bar, the bar system, like the camps, more than Argentina. It's like heretical to us. Oh, the video assistant referee yeah. where there's a team of four referees in the booth that can call down and re- review a play and change the ruling. That's huge. I mean, it's been such a big change. Yes, the average Argentinian about it, and they hate it. They think like it's anti-football. Yeah, I mean, I know that in their, their earlier match, they had like three goals called back against Saudi Arabia for offsides by the video assistant referee. It's not even... They were offsides. They were offsides. And then the counterpoint was, well, we've been playing football our whole lives and that was never offsides. If they didn't call it, it's a goal. It's more an issue of... We don't particularly care it's harming us. It's more of, this is not how... Most people consider it's not how football should be played. Because we have what everyone calls the mentalidad de potrero. The potrero being that six guys, six boys playing on the street with a ball of literal cloth. Like the usual. There's something beautiful about that. It's art, not science. It's a little bit wrong to have like precise video interventions. I agree that it should be there because it makes the game more fair. But people will say that part of football is not the fairness. It's the dance. It's like the fall, the trip, the intentional tripping, the whole, the whole charade. Yeah. No, I mean, that's been fascinating to watch. And... To be clear, I understand those. I mean, there are some people who have articulated many good reasons not to watch this iteration of the World Cup because of all the corruption with FIFA and especially with Qatar. But but, but I'm used to that. I read a lot of amazing arguments on why we shouldn't watch the World Cup. But the fact the person that made the most of the of the blackmail of, of the corruption that led there was an Argentinian. So what can I say? Like he. <laughs> Two weeks later, after the World Cup got confirmed, he resigned. He got the money, got the bags, and went out. That's the Argentinian way. That's how it worked. Potrero? Is that it? Potrero? <laughs> this, is the... this is the Potrero. Este es el Potrero, el fútbol argento. El Dibu. Well, geez, what better segue, Mord, to a magic topic? My gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we go from El Potrero... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Karate Dom. (laughs) (laughs) Two weeks ago, Zach promised we would cover this issue at some point, and we haven't gotten to it yet, so this is old news, but it was the first grinder controversy, magic grinder controversy, that we've had in, in years since before COVID. I am curious to hear your take on it, Mord. So this was a bit of a discussion in our Discord as well. Yeah. What happened? Well, so it must have been NRG, Nerve Age Games. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, one of these tournament series. One of the later rounds, 
uh, player who goes by the name Karate Dom on Magic Online. I, I don't know his real name, but he's a well-known grinder, respected grinder, I would say. I had a judge call that went against him. It had to do with his opponent forgetting the trigger on a Shale Dread, the Apocalypse. So, yeah, so how it goes exactly was, because I have read it a few too many times, they <laughs> agree, both players, that whenever the Shale trigger has been put on the stack, the player controlling the Shale Dread has been, so far, pretty consistent in marking trigger, trigger, trigger. You know, like college checking, he has been pretty working on that. However, there comes a point where the player that made the post, Karate Dom, goes ahead and starts his turn, takes a trigger, and I think plays a cantrip? Yeah, he played an opt. He plays an opt, and opponent doesn't say anything. Opponent says nothing, nothing happens, and he resolves his opt. However, without saying anything, he makes... He was at 6. He went from 8 to 6 with the first opt, and he goes like, okay, considering my opponent forgot the trigger, I'm gonna cast a consider. Basing himself on the basis that the opponent missed the trigger. He wouldn't have done it otherwise, according to him. So he casts the consider, and opponent goes, Okay, you go down to two. Assuming he was taking into account the previous trigger that had theoretically been missed. Right, so okay, the opponent at this point says, Alright, you've cast opt, you've cast consider, now you're taking four exactly. from the Shale Dread. So what happens here is a shot gets called. Assuming that the trigger went, was missed, Karate Dom is pretty sure about his position, but the final shot call is no. As the trigger can still feasibly exist, you could have responded to it with your consider, the trigger can be placed on the stack. As there has been no confirmation that the trigger was confirmed missed, like there has been no change of step or otherwise, or a confirmation that the stack has been clean, the way to resolve this is the first trigger is still on the stack, and you have a cast a consider on top of it. Which means after the consider resolves, the stack is only two shield triggers. Right, and Karate Dom was clear that you know, he understood that this was the correct enforcement of the rule. He checked with other judges afterwards, and they all confirmed that, yeah, this is the way that the current tournament rules are written. They're meant to be somewhat forgiving to missed triggers, I guess we could say that. Yeah. It's related in some ways to the idea that, um, like, if you control a prowess creature, a soul scar mage, and you cast some spells, you don't have to announce the triggers every time until it's relevant to the game state. Exactly. It's assumed that you didn't miss them until, you know, something happens that forces the decision to be yeah. clarified. <laughs> until your opponent asks you how much are you attacking for, or, like, there's, like, an exchange in the numbers that have to be said out loud, or when you, like pin down how much damage was made. That's the first time the trigger can actually be missed. So I believe that the judge, in talking or consulting with Karate Dom after the match, advised him that if you want to be absolutely sure that your opponent has forgotten their Shieldred trigger, you can ask your opponent, is the stack empty? And if you heard us memeing about that a couple of weeks ago, that's <laughs> kind of a preposterous phrase. But that, that was what that was getting at. It's like, this was the suggestion. You know, if you want to be sure they missed it, you ask, is the stack empty? So this leads to, I think, two controversies. One more important than the other. The first one being, was Karate Dom right in complaining? And I think the answer is quite clearly no. So because there's two alternatives there. He tried to um, get an advantage by opponent's misplay and either got punished by the shot call or by opponent outsmarting him and opponent knowing the ruling. 
Either or he got outplayed, or he didn't know enough about the game to outplay the other player. In either case, he's wrong. So in his defense, from his perspective, I think, he's feeling like, but my opponent forgot. Right? Like the indications were that my opponent actually missed it because they've been saying it throughout the game every turn, trigger, trigger, trigger. They forgot this one time, and based on the fact that I'm pretty sure they forgot, I took my next action, and then I was punished by these kind of somewhat surprising tournament rules that Karate Dom didn't realize the rules worked this way, that the rules were so forgiving to the opponent, saying, letting them essentially go back and catch the trigger they missed because Karate Dom had not specified where, where they yeah. were at in resolving this hidden stack. So in that sense, the game did not play out the way he expected it to. So in that sense, he, he might feel wronged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's still, like, you're trying to get an advantage out of the game because your opponent made a misplay, but in the end, the one who actually didn't know about the game ended up being himself. <laughs> right? Like, if you're going to complain about the ruling working against you and the ruling is correct, then it's your fault for not knowing the actual rulings that you are trying to get advantage of. And from there, I think there's like a more important debate that's where is the line of how much do we want to try hard at any event? Where is the line of what's sportsmanship in magic? So what do you think? So I, I'm an extremely relaxed player. Everybody, at least here in Argentina, knows me. And not only do I allow anyone or anything to roll back as long as it's not an actual misplay, I don't consider a lapse in judgment a misplay. Like, if my opponent says, bolt here, and immediately, like, steps back, so sorry, bolt face, I will never make a scene out of that. If my opponent plays the wrong land and immediately goes back, if my opponent fetches the wrong land, if my opponent misses an obvious trigger after we have been talking for 45 minutes, I'm not going to punish them on that. But I expect the same reciprocity, and I get it here. Like, only once in the last two years, outside of, like, a finals or, like, a semi-finals of an important tournament, has anybody ever called a shot on me? Because I incentivize that scenario where, like, neither of us is trying to get advantage of the other, so let's try to play a good game of Fashik and that's it. If anyone wins, be it because you played better, not because you made a stupid mistake. Do you find that that approach relies on you being sort of a, a member in good standing of the community and people 100%. knowing who you are? Like, if you sit down with a stranger you've never seen and have no relationship to, would that approach work, or do you feel like you would need more formal rules in place to standardize the experience and clarify the expectations? So anybody that knows me knows I'm extremely like straight. I'm straight like firing. So I will sit down and ask my opponent how do you want to play this game. Like I tend to do that whenever I play someone that doesn't know me. I will sit down and ask you how do you want to play this game. I think that puts an unfair burden on them. I mean. <laughs> That shouldn't have to be negotiated. This isn't Commander. This isn't like a rule zero conversation. No, no, it's, it's not negotiated. It's like, hey, so I tend to be pretty lax. Do you want to play this game like relax or do you want to play this game in a trying to try hard way? And I will just... But I, I won't judge. Like, I'm not annoyed by my opponent. Like, I don't hate it slightly. My opponent saying, yeah, let's play this. Like, let's actually try to play this game as good as possible. I will never even make a face. I completely agree with it. But I just like the rules on the ground. I will never feel cheated by my opponent saying I miss a trigger, except in the scenarios where I have had this happen before, where I had say my opponent, my opponent missed like two or three triggers and everything was fine, but the moment I missed my first one, he called a shot, and I was like, oh, you're a fucker. 
And what did the judge rule? Just out of curiosity, no, no. did the judge rule that you missed it? The judge ruled I missed it because I missed it. We are, I was playing a super fast game. He was stalling for time. So I had to like play really fast. I was playing four color control and I had gone like cast a witness, cast a Yorion, bounce everything, get back these two cards. And he was like, no, no, you missed the first witness trigger. Interesting. I feel like the judge shouldn't have ruled against you in that case. But that's a finer point. I felt the same, but eventually I ended up winning that game. I got super killed because they were stalling for time, and then they realized if I get a Brennan 6 emblem, I was able to time walk six times. So I got like the five extra turns. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, you only have three attack steps. And I was like, no, no, I have six. Well, a couple of things come to mind here. So one, I don't, I don't want in any way to stigmatize calling a judge. Calling a judge is not a punishment. No, no. The judges are there to help. Exactly. But I hear what you're saying about, you know, maybe the opponent in that case was violating the spoken or unspoken social contract that you thought you were operating under by, well, we'll call that tryharding, I guess. We can call it tryharding. Which is a plague upon the tournament scene, I understand. I think every game has, like, its inherent social contract. Like, one of the best players in Argentina called Martin Dominguez is extremely good at the game. And he's known for being, like, pretty, like, wrecked, like, pretty, like... You miss the tiniest of triggers. Like, I have seen him not allow someone to gain four mana with Omnath just because they didn't, call, they didn't trigger the four life. They were playing against me, they forgot to say again for life. So the first, after they fetch, they gain four life. So Omnath is not a May, right? I, th- I think that's an important yeah. caveat we should mention. This We're talking about cards where a trigger is supposed to happen and it's not an optional trigger. Exactly. According to the rules on the card, it's just supposed to happen. So if you're playing this on Arena, if you're playing this on Magic Online, I will call these quote-unquote purer forms of the game where you know the, the software takes care of it. Every time it will happen the way it's supposed to happen. And it's only when you take this to the imperfect world of humans playing with cardboard that there's a possibility for someone to forget the trigger. Yeah. So this is where it, it really gets a little bit fuzzy for me because I don't want to win that way. Like, yes, I understand that missed triggers will happen, but it doesn't make me feel like a better player if I you know, realize my opponent forgot something and use that to my advantage. Yeah. However, when I play against Martin, because we have our, like, an inherent social contract, he will, like, mockingly say, um, you didn't say you gain for life, and I will be like, ha, huh, fuck you, you take four, because this is five-star land drop. And he will laugh about it, and he will take four life out of his life total, because he knows he can play relax against me. Against me. He knows he hasn't had to play like he's watching his own triggers more than mine, because he knows I'm not gonna fire against him. Or because he's afraid that you're connected to, like, other players. No, no, because he's a friend of mine, because, because we all just talk like that, because some players, friend of ours, are like, no, no, let's play this game, like, straight face, let's play this tryharding, and I will say, of course. The difference between how much bullshit I'm spewing throughout the game, because I actually have to, con- to concentrate on not being an idiot. But I think that's just part of the social contract every player has in its own game, and I don't think it's wrong. Let's add also, when I say nobody call a shatch on me, I mean nobody call a shatch trying to get me on something. I have had shatches call on rulings or on a lot of stuff. Like, that's normal. But never on like a strike, like only once or twice in my career for someone saying you miss something or trying to get an advantage of a mistake. I'm encouraged to hear that. I'm glad that it works. I don't think that that would work for everyone. I'll just throw that out there. Like, I get the sense that the Argentinian community is a little bit smaller. Yeah, that's... And there's some sense where everyone knows each other, and that, you know, if you are going to 
flagrantly break the contract, the repercussions will come back on you. No, like, they wouldn't. Your reputation or people. <laughs> I'm one of the few players that actually does that and does it with the good players. I have played against Salvato and we have played like relaxed. But I have seen Salvato crush both amazing players and new players without any hesitation. Crush them on rulings or crush them through on anything. technical gameplay? No, no, on rolling as well. Okay, so I mean, that that's what it comes down to for me, is like, does Salvato feel like part of his mastery of the game is the fact that he knows all these rulings about, oh, if you miss that trigger, you've missed it, it's gone now, I don't lose two life from the Shaeldred. Or does he feel like, well, if I'm a truly a better player, then fine, you know, if I cast the extra consider, I'll take the two damage. To me, it's weird to try to, you know, feel like you have this path to victory that involves your opponent forgetting something that clearly should have happened according to the cards. I think that it, more, it mostly boils down to how do you feel the game should be played or what is the... So I start, I play mostly online, so I consider that the real magic is what happens when the game... So I'm like extremely protocol or I'm like extremely square on that regarding that I think a game should be played as a ruling says the game should be played. If the game says when the first land enters the battlefield you gain for life, I don't care what happens. When the first land enters the battlefield, you gain for life. So would you remind the opponent if oh, they I, I, had an Omnath I have done it. And I, I have done it a million and I will do it a trillion times. As long as I know my opponent is not going to try and take advantage of me if the thing happens. Why? Because I might be protocoler, but I'm not an idiot. I think the playing field should be equal for us all. I think the playing field should be, we're playing magic. In the ruins of magic, if the card says this, this is what happens. Not me trying to get you to not notice that. Something pretty common here, like a cheat I have seen a million times, is hiding packs or trying to get your opponent to forget their pack trigger. I once saw a guy start a whole 25-minute discussion local-wise only for his opponent to miss the pack trigger. Oh, like a summoner's yeah, pack, a pack exactly. that kind of thing? Yeah. That makes me angry. <laughs> I, I know, I know, but that's how the game is played here sometimes. And I know that, that's why I try to... Level, I, I consider that. the game. That's not how the game should be played. I don't think that's magic. But legally, legally, what he did is totally correct. If he was trying to win, that's what he should be doing. Like, I can't argue with that, and that's why, if he wants to do that against me, I won't hold it against him, only in the fact that I will also try to do that to him. Never in a personal wise, because that's his own decision, but yes, in a game regard, I will not give advantage that I don't have to, to someone that wouldn't give it to me. So I think I understand where your position is on this, but... In the classic example, the one that always comes up is, well, what about the Chalice check? The Chalice of the Void check. Your opponent controls Chalice of the Void, one counter on it. Do you cast a spell into it? <laughs> the thinking being, well, it's they're responsible for their triggers. I have so never done that. Forget to say anything, right? If they just let me resolve my... I was going to say Serum Visions, yeah, but yeah. nobody plays that. <laughs> just let me resolve my consider... And don't, you know, don't announce their chalice trigger. They forgot. And, you know, it's their, it's their fault. Right? This is a legitimate way to win, to chalice check them. So I have never chalice checked someone. Like the only time I have cast spells into a chalice is when there was an upside in actually casting the spell, you know, emptying my hand, prowess, etc., whatever. Like I have never went ahead and cast a spell against a chalice hoping my opponent fizzles. Okay. And I wouldn't do it unless my opponent 
but I would do it against an opponent that has shown me that he would do it against me. That's what I mean. Thing is, I hadn't been in that situation that often. Because I think most people, most people would prefer to play the game as it should be played, but most people are afraid their opponent wouldn't. Right? It's like a prisoner's dilemma. We both want to play the game fairly, but if I do and you don't, I'm fucked. And you do the same, and I'm gonna assume you're not, because I'm not gonna be the one that's fucked. We're both gonna get fucked, or no one is. I hope it's the case that most people want to play fairly. I think most people, excluding specific grinders, like, want to play that, and don't, because they have been led to the conclusion that most people are gonna try and get any advantage they can out of them. Which is correct, because they would also get any advantage out of their opponent, afraid of their opponent doing so. That's why I leveled the playing field at the start, because most people are gonna say, outside of like a semi-finals or like a finals of an important tournament, where a lot of money is on the line, most people are gonna say, yeah, let's just take this. Relax. I would rather be talking about what the fucking are you gonna do in your holidays than having to think, wait, did I get the Darcy trigger four turns ago when I casted my sixth spell that turn? So to me, this is the last piece of the discussion. It's like, okay, well, the rule is what it is. <laughs> Karate Dom thought it might be one thing, it turned out it was something else. And then people debate, is this a good rule? Should it be changed? Et cetera, et cetera. And whenever this discussion comes up, one of the arguments that is often advanced is, well, the rule has to be X because you can't enforce you know, the alternative. Right? We have to have this ruling or that ruling this policy or that policy, because there's no way to enforce if someone tries to violate it. And it's hard to push back against arguments like that, because, yeah, the, the truth is there's so many rules of the game that we, we really cannot actually enforce. If somebody wants to cheat, if somebody wants to break the rules... They will. We can't stop them, right? Like, you cannot actually stop someone from putting five of a fetch land into their deck. Like, they get deck checked once every... 12 tournaments or something you just trust that they don't have five fetch lands in their deck five polluted deltas let's say we just assume that it people are playing by the rules but we we don't actually have the mechanisms in place to enforce that what it comes down to is the culture has to enforce it and the culture can be changed right you have to set the tone from the top that we don't respect people who cheat we don't respect people who angle shoot we don't consider that a legitimate way to gain edges. Like we respect you more if you play fair, if you actually say, hey, that's not an optional trigger. So yeah, I, I'm casting this opt, I'm casting this consider, I'll mark the true life myself. I think that the biggest issue there in the line is most people, for what I have seen on Twitter, at least the vocal minority, I think, don't consider doing the opt-consider thing an angle shooter or a cheat. I think there's right now quite a stigma against cheaters and angle shooters. I think that's right. I think that exists. The issue is the line of what's considered angle shooting, I think it's a bit lower than it should be. I think that sort of play should be considered angle shooting. I agree that I, right now they aren't, and I wouldn't call someone a cheater for doing it, but I think we should. Yeah, I don't think that he cheated based on where the rules currently are. Exactly. So I can't call them a cheater. It's just that his thought process was, oh, my opponent forgot, therefore I can proceed with my next play thinking that I'm at too higher life than I should be. And that, I mean, that's the part that I want to change. I want to change that part of the culture, the part where he feels like, okay, well, now that I know my opponent, I mistakenly know, I mistakenly think my opponent has missed the trigger, now I can proceed with my next plan. Just make the game play out correctly. You know, you just mark the trigger yourself. Who cares if they forgot? 
you you noticed it. You should just say it. So I think this ties back absolutely well to what we were talking about a few minutes ago to the Potrero mentality. This is exactly how Argentina plays football. The line is 0.1 to the left of what the shots said. <laughs> if the shots said this is not cheating, I'm going to push until he says that is. I'm going to take the first warning that it is cheating. I'm going to play mm. just a tiny little bit less of that. That's the winning mentality. That's like, if I didn't do this, I didn't maximize the game. And I think that's where the mistake comes from the game itself. That should be considered cheating. Because if not, not doing that, it's actually misplaying. Not angle shooting right now is misplaying. I will agree with that. The same way not throwing myself in a football game into the floor and crying whenever I get slightly tapped is misplaying. Because I'm not maximizing the odds of my opponent getting a red card. The same way in a basketball game holding my power straight and getting kicked back is misplaying. If I move, it's my own pun. It's the same in all sports. I think the problem is where the line should be. And I don't like theatricals in magic. The whole, oh no, I didn't spot the trigger, that's why I cast my consider, because I can't admit that I actually knew it and realized that and I'm just trying to skew an advantage. That's bullshit. But that's the current rules of the games. So to use the soccer example, sorry, the football example, yes. sorry, sorry, football. I, I apologize. Good. You warned me not to not to utter the S word. The on this S word. Podcast. The forbidden S word. The culture of flops, of faking injuries, got pretty bad about 16, 20 years ago, to the point where they did introduce a new rule. They call it simulation in the FIFA guidebook, where if the referee really is convinced that you're faking it, that you know your opponent lightly bumped into you and you fell over and are pretending your knee is hurt because you got a big hit, then the referee can call you for a foul and give you the yellow card. How many times have I seen that actually called? I have seen that. It just never happened. No, no, I have seen that. It happened in the last... It hasn't happened in this tournament. No, it happened in the last World Cup against Argentina. Uh, I, don't, I think it was a Dutch player that tripped on it that went down on purpose, so that, a Dutch land player. Okay, so that player got a yellow card once, but it's extremely rare. But he's going to do it again, and, he, and he's going to keep throwing himself because he has likely getting much more yellow cards for the other team. So not throwing is a misplay. Well, this is a case where trying to solve this by introducing a rule, right? introducing, a, introducing a new rule that says, okay, the referee is allowed to give you the yellow card for faking. That's not enough. That's not enough to stop the behavior. The culture itself has to change. And the, the culture has to be bigger than the game itself. Like, yes, within a single game, you maximize your team's chances of winning that game by faking, by falling over. Or the punishment has to be bigger. Exactly. We need to change the culture so that the punishment is somehow in the metagame, that you'll be kind of shunned, you'll be a laughingstock, you'll be looked down on by your peers, and you won't be respected. Yeah. If you get the reputation of someone who plays this way, you will not be respected. And that's, I know it sounds harsh, but I think that is actually the goal. That is the way to change some of this behavior. And I'm not trying to call out Karate Dom or anyone else. No, but I, that's what I said. Karate Dom, I would never call him a cheater. I would never say that what he did was wrong. I would never say... I hate to say it, he actually plays the game correctly. He does what he has to do to win. Yeah. I don't enforce that. Why? Because I would rather misplay and play the game correctly. I know I'm misplaying by not doing it. I consider myself to be an above average player, especially when I play weird decks. Because I play crappy decks and I play weird decks, I play error vile decks that tends to have a lot of lines that my opponent will not consider until it happens and they will lose themselves on them. And I have lost my first share of games by being more 
educational or trying to actually play a fair game than trying to win. But I think that's the game. I shouldn't have won that game. I got unlucky. It happens. Yeah, I think that's a healthy attitude to have. I'm encouraged to hear that you're on that side. Things that seem unenforceable, they can be enforced by changing the culture. Even in magic, even the classic example would be the intentional draw problem. For how many years? 10 years? 15 years? Everyone agreed that it's impossible to stop players from taking draws in the last round of a tournament. Yeah. But it turns out you can. You just introduce a rule that says draws are not allowed. And they did this in the Magic Pro League. We just we do not want anyone to take intentional draws. Don't do it. The counter argument was always, well, players can just go to time and they'll let, you know, they'll run up the clock because it benefits them both to take a draw. You can't enforce this. But you actually can. You just state clearly, we do not allow intentional draws. The punishment will be severe if you take an intentional draw. If you do anything sketchy like that, and it worked perfectly. Like nobody took an intentional draw at any point in the Magic Pro League. So that's that's exactly what I meant. But I think should happen, like the biggest fix to all of these. If you admit, if you're able to admit, if you actually know that you're gonna miss a trigger, and and we're always oh, I want to make something of course pretty certain. We're always talking about compulsory triggers for all of these rulings. If you know your opponent missed a trigger and you're actually trying to take advantage of it and it can be proven that you actually knew about this, you should get treated as cheating, be it a disqualification, be it a warning, be it whatsoever, whatever. Mm. I don't care. If a compulsory trigger was missed and either player was aware of it, that's cheating. At least should be considered cheating. Why? Because the rules of the game say it should happen. It's not your decision to avoid aid from happening. That's not how the game works. This used to be the rules. There was a period of time when both players were responsible for maintaining the game state, and even if your opponent forgot a trigger, you would both be punished, both be given a warning, essentially, for failing to notice that trigger. They changed that rule at some point, I don't remember when, but, you know, that might have been the best version of the policy. But even then, I guess my larger point is, it's not just the policy. You can't just say, you can't just put it on judges to enforce this. You have to put it on the broader community. No, no, I think think the community and the gamebook, like the rulebook should say, intentionally missing force triggers is a cause of either warning or dequalification. I don't care. I don't know what the punishment should be, but it should be enforceable against it. The moment judges start enforcing against it, the community will start cheating, will seeing it as actual cheating instead of actual playing correctly. The moment it goes from optimizing the gameplay into cheating, popular eyes shift on what is happening. It's no longer optimizing the gameplay, it's now actually cheating. Yeah, you can get away with cheating, but everybody knows you're trying to cheat. Good. I like that. So I think Karate Dom, I'm gonna say it again just in case, so I don't because I hate getting anybody saying my words weirdly. He didn't cheat, he didn't do anything wrong. Actually, he played the game perfectly. Well, not perfectly, because he panted in not doing the actual ruling, but his <laughs> intentions were correct. His intentions were correct. He actually tried to maximize his chances of winning the game via the rules, via the games, the rules that are allowed in the game book. That's the correct way of playing. That's the Argentinian way of playing. That's what Argentina is in the semi in the semi-finals. <laughs> I don't agree with that. I think that's more closer to cheating than it should be. Why? 
I don't know, consider it ethics, consider it that moral. And I think that's the way to progress. The, pro the progress should come from those attitudes started being considered cheating by the gamebook, and in that way, enforceable against them. That's a beautiful dream. I like that. All right, well, we should talk about some deck lists before we, <laughs> before we talk up all the time. So before we go all the time... As good a time as any to transition here and tell you a little bit about the decks that we tested last week. So we talked about Combat Thresher last week. Kind of a surprising little card. I mean, this is not a high-profile prototype by any stretch. It's seven mana for a 3-3 double strike, enters the battlefield, draw a card. Prototype version, two and a white for a 1-1 double strike, enters the battlefield, draw a card. It draws a card. So it's already like, it can't be that bad, right? I think that was the theory, at least. The ETV draw a card is like the add to any instant or sorcery draw a card, and all of a sudden it's amazing. You just stamp add a card to something and it becomes like 50% better. 50% better, exactly. And now the question is, even being 50% better, is that good enough? Because three mana for a 1-1 double strike, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. So... You may get better, but is it good enough? What role can Combat Thresher play in a deck? Now it has synergies with blinking, it has synergies with artifact stuff, it has synergies with reanimation, and you know, we we brew decks with all of these concepts. I think David had four different lists. Yeah. I tried two of them myself. Emmy, you tried one of David's lists, and you also tried a list in modern. Maybe we'll start in Modern, because that's the format we didn't talk about that much. Uh, we focused mainly on Pioneer. Yeah, and we only have one deck list. So the list we talked about in Modern is one that had showed up in a 5-0 league. Was it also in a challenge? Yeah, it was like top 16 in a challenge and 5-0 a league. It was like this mono-white affinity shenanigans. Interestingly, there were no cards in the deck that actually had the affinity mechanic. It was just mono-white cards that interact in some way with artifacts. Yeah, I think it actually has... Yeah, it has zero affinity. It does have a bunch of Metalcraft somewhere, I think. No, not even that. It has stuff that cares about the amount of artifacts you have. I see Esper Sentinels. I see Ingenious Smith. I see Urza Saga. That's kind of the artifact package. Stoneforge Mystic yeah. gets artifacts. Um, Solitude and Ephemerate, I mean, that has nothing to do with artifacts, but if you're playing Combat Threshers, of which this deck is playing four, yeah, blinking it makes sense, and at that point, you know, it makes sense to have the Solitude Ephemerate package that also works with Ingenious Smith. Exactly. So something that actually won me two games of this league, where I went 3-2, was I was playing against aggressive decks, and I got a Thresher, which I managed to get a Shadow Spear on. Oh, okay. 8-8 Double Strike Trample Lifelink was just unstoppable against Sue or whatever. I think it was a Surek and a Burn, but I just lost to that. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. Like, unlocking that, I was going to say the backside of Combat Thresher, but it's actually the normal mode, the 3-3 Double Strike. <laughs> it's the backside. Yeah, the backside. I mean, gosh, 4-4 Double Strike Lifelink Trample. So my question for you, Mort, is like, when you were playing this deck, there's no way to get Combat Thresher into play besides you at least have to, at some point in the game, cast it for three mana. Like, on one of your turns, you pay three and get a 1-1 one, one double strike and draw a card. Now, maybe later you ephemerate it, maybe you don't, but 
was that mode of the combat thresher like was that good enough to keep up with the pace of modern mm, kinda it was the thresher wasn't the best card in the deck in the slightest like i won i i won against smoke tide on the back of solitude ephemerate like anursa saga that is good enough to win you a couple of games in modern <laughs> sure sure ephemerate plus a pitch elemental plus anursa saga can just win games so the combat thresher was medium. I don't know if I would play four, but I think you can play an up two or three of them as additional payoff for ephemerates. Because I'm running four ephemerates in a deck whose only good ETVs are Smith and Solitude. So it actually accomplished a good role in being like the ninth and tenth card you can blink, so ephemerate doesn't rot in your hand. Well, Stone Force is an ETB, and they, they do have two Nelsus in the deck, right? So it's not totally out of the question to consider that Stoneforge is like another blink target, but yeah, you do want more, right? With combat threshers, you have 12 good creatures to blink, 12 to 16, depending yeah. on how you count Stoneforge. Yeah, Stoneforge is the most mediocre one of them. Ingenious Smith is also looking for artifacts, so it looks like you have uh, 13 regular artifacts, four Darksteel Citadel, so that's 17. Then Esper Sentinels is 21. Then Combat Threshers is 25. 25 artifacts for your ingenious smiths. So in that sense, the Thresher plays a role there. There's actually not that many other cards that are that are artifacts that work with Blink and with work with Smith. Yeah. Doesn't pitch a solitude, so you're a little light on white cards. No, you're not, because Portable Hole also helps. You have a bunch of like. You have the foes, you have the excess copy of Ephemerates. Like, you're playing, what, white cards? Four solid, four stop, 16 creatures, four Ephemerates. Four, 24 white cards is more than enough. I got away with playing Fury in four color with like 14 in Yorion. 14 red cards in Yorion? Oh my god. That's what the four color used to play. You had Renan 6, Expressive Iteration, Fury, and Omnath. So trust me, 24 is more than enough. So your overall assessment of the deck and of Combat Thresher's role in the deck? In modern, it was a touch too clunky. It was a good role player. I wouldn't make a deck around it. It's a good role player when you're looking for extra artifacts with ETVs or similar. So you can imagine easily a, a better card being printed in the same role. Like This is acceptable for, for now, but it's not like a card you're that happy about. Yeah. It was a good card, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't. Be, I don't think it has a place to build around in modern. It can appear indexed, and it will appear randomly indexed, and it will be a good role player there. So you're not looking to sneak combat threshers into your soul herder deck or something like that. I mean, that's. I mean, if you're a coco deck, no, the problem is that you're a coco deck. Yeah, doesn't it not being a coco hit sort of really dampens its possibilities. Hmm. Okay, well, that's modern. Maybe the end of the road for Combat Thresher and modern so far. But we can shift to Pioneer, where the format is perhaps slightly more forgiving of a slower mid-rangey play. And here we had a few different builds from David. I'll tell you about the one that I played the most. It was the blue-white Tezzerator build. This is Tezzeret Betrayer of Flesh. Very, very interesting Planeswalker. Has three good abilities, plus a static ability that reduces costs. All for four mana. And we got a bunch of new cards for it. We got the Combat 
courier, not the combat thresher, but the combat courier, <laughs> the little uh, clue machine with Unearth. I, I played some draft of this expansion, and I got a deck with five of those. Damn, I that card. It's beautiful, right? <laughs> this is like weirdly like one of the, the only cards that made this deck function. One to cast, one to unearth, two to sack as a clue. It's like two clues in a trench coat. So that's a new card that works great with Tezzeret. Um, we also are playing two of the new Surge engine, four combat threshers, which you know doesn't synergize with that much here besides it, you know, being an artifact for Ingenious Smith, being an artifact for Metallic Rebuke. But Tezzeret's minus ability can convert your combat thresher into a 4-4 double strike, which I did several times. Uh, you round out the deck with portable holes, moonsnare prototypes, um, metallic rebukes I mentioned already, smiths, patchwork automatons, and I think I had a Reckoner Bankbuster in my first build. Yeah, there's a sneaky little Reckoner in there. Yeah, so it was interesting. I ended up playing this. It was so much fun. Like After my first league, I was like, I gotta play again. This deck was so much fun. So in that sense, hmm. it was a great success. Like we, we can't expect the world from these brews, but a deck that energizes you and makes you want to play it more. Uh, this deck definitely <laughs> passed that bar. I played three leagues with it, actually. I went 3-2, 3-2, and then 2-3. So middle-of-the-road results. The thing that I noticed was that the Thresher was just like... Meh. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't ever part of the best draws. Exactly. It's a it's a medium middle of the right line role play. It's like cards fifty four to sixty. It's one of those six cards. I would replace it for something better, but I don't know if I can find something better that fits the rest of this um, of that fits the strategy. Of those fifteen rounds that I played, I think I only cast it for seven like twice. Like almost hmm? every time, I cast it for three. So okay. the, the whole like modality of it is maybe it's a three drop, maybe it's a seven drop. It's it's just a three drop. <laughs> Even in Pioneer, it's, it's just a three drop. It's not an impressive three drop. So at some point you do have to pump it. Like I wasn't unhappy playing it for three mana to get like that card draw, but it wasn't doing that much. Like it usually didn't really do much until whatever turn I got the Tezzeret down. So in that sense, like, yeah, it was somewhat less impactful than I hoped, but still like, you know, just, just a cantrip artifact is sort of good enough, right? Yeah. In a lot of board states. So yeah, I thought this was going to be a deck where the combat thresher would have a nice home. It ended up being a deck where combat courier was the big star and like the, <laughs> the games where I lost were games where I didn't draw enough combat couriers early to like get the engine up and running. But Tezzeret was very good. Combat courier was very good. Beautiful interaction there. I ended up like as the leagues went on, I ended up putting more and more removal into the main deck, more and more glass caskets. Cause you don't, you don't think about it that much. Like you don't think of Rakdos as a deck that has problematic creatures, but it turns out that if you well, yeah, if you're if you're like a mid-range deck of any kind, if you can't kill someone with speed, if they ever stick a Shieldred, you're just dead. Like this deck yeah. draws a million cards, so I was just completely dead to Shieldred. And not even that, but just Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Turns out that if you just leave the Fable in play forever and you can't can't actually kill the backside, that you're just gonna die to that reflection of Kikijiki just making copies of value creatures. So this is still a synergy deck at the end of the day, and that was kind of the disappointing thing, was that although I was capable of like overpowering some opponents when I got everything up and running, 
they were also capable of just, you know, breaking up my synergies, you know, patchwork automaton, combat thresher. They have plenty of time to like land a stomp on these with bone crusher giant before they get out of hand. And their creatures always just, you know, are always working all the time without extra effort. So I think I went Oh three against Rakdos. Like it was kind of frustrating. Oh, <laughs> like, I was, I was pretty good against everything else, but Oh three against Rakdos, I was usually losing game one against almost everything because, you know, the, the interaction was not quite right in game one and this deck was kind of slow. So you just kind of end up losing game ones and then come back, bring in the correct interaction for game two, win that game, and then you have to win on the draw in game three. It's, it's not great. <laughs> Always winning on the draw is a tough part. Yeah. So fun deck, fun concept. I'll post the the final iteration I landed on after three leagues, which has more glass caskets and like fewer Reckoner Bankbusters, Surge Engine type stuffs. But you know, there might be something here. Definitely a fun deck to play. Okay, that's nice. So that's blue white Tesserator. I mean, you also played David's blue white list, but it wasn't this one. It was his other blue white list. So the only reason I got into the second list is because I finally was tempted into playing. I finally found a reason to play Halo Respite. <laughs> and I have been looking for a bad excuse to play that card in Pioneer for a while. Well, tell us about this card. Yeah, blue and a white for a two mana. Sorcery blink. Why the hell is it a sorcery? When exile target non-legendary creature, then return it to the battlefield under its owner's control. If it was under your control, it gets a plus one plus one. If it's an opponent's control, tap it. So two mana sorcery, and more importantly, it has flashback for three mana. So two mana blink something, if it's not yours, stop it. If it's yours, plus one, plus one counter, and for three mana, you get a flashback. I still don't understand why the freaking freakity freak, this is a sorcery. And I hate it. Well, they don't want to be able to save your creatures. That would be too powerful for standard and pioneer, I guess. That would be pretty good. They want you to like force it to use it in a narrower path, right? So it's a sorcery speed, tap your opponent's thing and blink it, or blink your own thing and grow it. Which is interesting, I hmm. guess, but it's not powerful. Yeah. Or is it? I guess that's a question. I mean, that's what makes it not particularly powerful. So what do you think? I mean, you played two copies. Was it like a card you were excited to draw? So yeah, so the card was actually pretty decent in the decklist. So the decklist right now is 24 lands, Glasspool Mimic, 4 Thraven Inspector, 3 Portable Hole, I think you need the 4 one in the main deck, 4 Charming Prince, 4 Malevolent Hermit, I'm gonna go into that in a second, 3 Thalias, 2 Denix, 2 Sun Gold Sentinel, 2 Halo Respite, 4 Extraction Specialist, 2 Reflector, 2 Skyclave for Thresher. So... Thresher in this deck works amazingly well with both Charming Prince and Halo Respite. Charming Prince can die in the early game, get it back with Extraction Specialist and bounce Thresher for a lot of value. Halo Respite can bounce both of the creatures in your deck. And the reason you have both Malevolent Hermit and Denik is how well Blink Spells work with cards that have... What's the name of that Gordon mechanic? <laughs> Disturb. Disturb. So you can Blink Disturb creatures into making them undisturbed and have them once again without the when it dies exile trigger. So if you go like turn two, hermit, turn three, you counter something on your turn for some godforsaken reason, or you champ block, then you can you can then disturb it, charming prince the disturbed creature, get it on the flip side once again, and when it dies you can disturb it again. 
you have like this endless amount of two ones that mana leak. It's a nice idea. I was somewhat skeptical that we would actually have time to pull that off. Did you ever pull it off? I haven't done it. I haven't done it even once. <laughs> it's hard to find time even to cast the first benevolent geist. Like that's three mana for a two-two flyer. It's not easy to find time for that unless you're completely out of resources, which does yeah. happen in some matchups. That's that was the biggest issue. Like disturbing the creature was not. Like I tended to be to have more resources than my opponent. I just needed to focus on tempo. So getting a three mana two-two for like free was not the goal. Right. Also, Talia and Respite are like it's a three mana respite is so expensive. Well, how about the Hallowed Respite blinking your combat thresher to make it even bigger? That did happen once. Even no, that happened twice. So you get a 4-4 double striker of a sudden that draws you a card. That's insane. But it only happened a few, and we don't have that many blink effects. What happened more consistently was Charming Prince, the combat treasure. Which most of the time led to my opponent 2-for-1 in themselves using a removal on my 1-1 one one that already drew a card. So it wasn't terrible. The fact that Treasure draws you a card in both ETVs, as you say that, makes it like it's the, the downside is not huge. It's definitely asking to be blinked. The question is, yeah. like, yeah, it takes some time to blink it, so do you get paid off enough for doing this blink? The third deck that I played, or the second deck, I should say, the third of David's Pioneer Brews that I played was his black-white uh, prototype deck that also used Charming Prince. So again, we're trying to use Charming Prince to blink the Combat Thresher. This deck also had the Phyrexian Flesh Gorger, a card that I've been very negative about, <laughs> at least in my preseason evaluations. So, you know, I figured I should at least try it to see if I have to eat my words afterwards. A couple of times, the Flesh Gorger single-handedly won the match. So, <laughs> so maybe I should have it, given it like more of a chance. But there were other matches where it did nothing. So a bit of a high-variance card. But yeah, we have the four Combat Threshers, the four Phyrexian Flesh Gorgers, four Charming Prince, three Refurbished. So part of the idea here is maybe we play these prototypes, they naturally die. Something happens. Yeah, and then we just refurbish it and we get the the full price version for only four mana. There's also four Rafines Informant to facilitate that. So you can play Rafines Informant on turn two, discard one of your prototypes or a Sky Sovereign, and then refurbish it later. Very, very mid-rangey deck. I mean, there's four Thoughtseize, four Fatal Push, two Vanishing Verse, four Thraben Inspector, and that's actually an important card because you're going to draw these Charming Princes at all kinds of awkward times, mm. and you just need something that they can blink. Thraben Inspector does that job. And finally, two Graveyard Trespassers. Because why not? Exactly. So when I played this deck, I mean, gosh, whatever I was saying about the Blue-White Tesserator being a bad Game 1 deck... This was an awful game one deck. Like, I I went 0-5 in game one. I went 5-0 hmm. in game two. So, like, you, you kind of see how this goes, right? <laughs> like, game one, like, you're doing your thing, but your thing is not actually good enough to beat any existing deck. Like, whatever their plan is is probably better than whatever this plan is in their pure forms. Now, game two, you change things around, get more interaction in, usually more removal. You're on a play, you can win. 
right? I, I won game two in a landslide most of the time. And then you have to win game three on the draw, and it's not so easy. So I ended up going two and three overall in the league. But, I mean, okay. yeah, like, maybe it could have been a 3-2 if I would taken a, a different line against Spirits where, you know, I, I maybe didn't give the Flesh Gorger enough credit. I should have pre-combat Charming Prince it just to, like, make sure that I definitely got my 7-5 Menace Lifelink. But even so, like, this is a very fair deck. Like, especially just losing game one every single time. I'm like, man, these prototypes, they're not that impressive when you play them. Like, they're impressive when nothing else is happening in the game. So you first have to create that condition first. Um, and then you have time to do your stuff. Okay, yeah. Hmm. So I don't know. I mean, did you feel like that when you were playing the blue-white version? I felt slow, but I felt like I could... So that deck was playing. The Dalias really helps stall for time, right? It's a, like it's a card that always starts and always stalls. So sometimes you have like the curve of like turn one Thraven to turn two Dalia and everything was fine. Then other times your first play was a turn two Sangle Sentinel into a turn three extraction specialist with nothing to get back and you're in trouble. It really depends on how the hand lighted up. Oh, you're playing all four extraction specialists, four copies main yeah. and no looting effects. And that was a few too many, trust me. I got a few too many 3-2 lifelinkers in my three in my three rounds. So maybe you needed the Rafine's Informant in, in your build, actually. Get a little more. Yeah, maybe take out the Hermits or like or something similar for four like informants. That would be great, actually. Huh. I mean I think the idea was okay, you cast your hermit even with respite the informant is great you get to sack the hermit at some point to counter something and then you extraction specialist yeah but you just don't get enough stuff to counter also extraction extraction sorry a fixed informant with hello respite is pretty nice beating the card with flashback oh yeah that's true little value okay so i think overall i mean our records were not bad but they were very middling yeah, they were all made off road. We've definitely had worse cards. <laughs> I think this one we came out ahead, which is rare for the cards we feature. But um, I mean, I didn't leave these leagues feeling like the combat thresher was the next great thing. I felt like it was just a filler piece. It fills multiple roles, which is good, but it's usually like the worst of the cards that you can draw for any of its roles. Like the black-white deck I was describing. It's there to be blinked. It's there to be reanimated. It's there for quote unquote value. It's just a normal cantrip card. In all of those categories, it's kind of the worst of the options. But the fact that it fills all those rules means that it has some place in the deck. Okay, yeah. As I said, it's a pretty, it's a really good role player. Just not an all star in most scenarios. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, that's a deeper dive on Combat Thresher than I think most people expected when they saw the set. But Our 35-minute deep dive into the logistics of Magic and Football, followed by 30 minutes of the Combat Thresher. Exactly. This is sure to be a hit episode. People are going to love this episode. <laughs> They'll be sharing with their friends. Saying, yeah. We want more. This is the content we crave. Give us those combat thresher lists and three-week-old magic rules discourse. But oh yay! Who doesn't love three-old discourse? Discourse never lies. Never dies. 
But I enjoyed hearing your takes on this, and I'm glad that you actually got to put this card through its paces, because I, I think all of us were somewhat attracted to that cantrip creature during the preview week. Sometimes it's good to be reminded that, okay, there, there's a ceiling on how good these cards can be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Medium cards tend to be medium. Who would have said that? That and more splashing hot takes in Faithless Brewing. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. We will be back on Friday with an, our next brew session. Emmy, thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. And we'll see you again soon. Have a nice night, everybody. Bye-bye.